This is HR in Review, a podcast dedicated to HR thought leadership, actionable advice, and all the latest developments in human resource management. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of HR in Review. I'm Amelia, your host of today's episode, and this time we're talking all things employment law. I'm firstly joined by Julia Commode, founder of iWork, which helps empower temps, gig workers and the self-employed. We discuss the nature of strikes and explore why using temps to cover striking staff is not the best approach. We also discuss what exactly went wrong in one of the biggest dismissal controversy stories this year with P&O Ferries. I'm then joined by Seb Malay, CEO of Kudos, who gives the latest on IR35. Outlining the recent changes to legislation, Seb explains the impact on HR and whether we're likely to see even more changes in the future. Hi, Julia. Welcome. It's great to have you on. Hi, thanks for having me. It's good to be here. Great. So first of all, would you like to tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and what it is you do? Yeah, sure. So um, I run an organisation called iWork um, and it's a bit niche. And what we do is support and champion the UK's army of temps, agency workers, contractors, gig economy workers and the self-employed. So basically anyone that's working but not in permanent employment. And that's at least 20% of the UK's workforce. So, So I've got a big job on my hands. Um, but it's those voices that um, are often missed in things like government policy and that sort of thing. Great, thank you. Um, I guess a good starting point then for talking about strikes is their prevention in the first place. So how do you think businesses can prevent them, if possible even? Yeah, I mean, it's a tricky one. And of course, um, uh, it's, it's easy to sit here and say, you know, treat your staff fairly um, and, you know, have good working conditions, etc. Um, and, you know, what we're seeing at the moment is that even good employers are struggling because because everyone is struggling financially um and so that that is the the really difficult point that that people are facing and actually you know people may want more money but the business may not actually have any more money to to offer so uh, you know and the it's about how you kind of manage their expectations, good communication, um, and you know whether there are any alternatives that that can be looked at. Um, and you know businesses have to run and be viable. Of course they do, and it's not always possible to give more money um, to to people just because they 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 need it. Mm, exactly. So moving on, you know, towards the the role of the government then. Why do you think the government is tightening rules to prevent strike action? Yeah, I mean, again, part of this is due to the the economy at the moment, um, and it looks likely that we'll be entering a recession. Um, and, you know, they, they've been quoted a number of times as saying, you know, strike action causes widespread disruption to vital services, and, and the government um, uh, wants to prevent that. But... What I think the government failed to realise is that that strike action is not normally a first choice. It's it's normally a last resort when when a group of people feel genuinely like they're not being heard. Um, And, you know, the government has brought into to effect um, a number of pieces of legislation to aimed at minimising the impact of strikes. Um, and I think a lot of that could be, if I can be so blunt, pandering to middle England who, who get frustrated at their day being disrupted by people on strike. But that's the whole purpose of a strike is to cause disruption. So it's, it's, it's a hard one. Um, 
I can understand why the government is looking at it, but um, but yeah, I think they they could be doing things in a slightly different or better or better way. Mm, exactly. I mean, it's interesting what you say about you know the whole purpose of them is to cause disruption in the first place, isn't it? Um, so anyway, what about the use of temps then? Uh, why why is using temps to cover striking staff not necessarily the, the best approach? Well. It's it's a hard one actually because temps um, do a brilliant job for 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 the economy and they keep um, businesses running um, uh, etc. But the nature of strikes themselves is obviously there's some sort of disagreement going on um, and that means that temps providing cover for for people on strike could be. Uh, crossing picket lines, they could be walking into hostile environments, um, and and it would be irresponsible not to inform temps in advance um, of it. So my, that's that's kind of in essence one of my big points. Um, I have no no massive issue in relation to temps providing that cover, but it is it is something that hasn't been legally possible for for a number of years. So it's it's a recent change, and I think there's a real duty of care there to to inform them of what they're going into. Because to be honest with you, temps may prefer to work elsewhere and so I know that seems counterintuitive for anyone listening to think oh well I need temps to come in I need to inform them but actually um, you know it's not fair on those temps potentially going into a difficult situation if they don't know about it in advance. Yeah that's that's super interesting I mean you know you mentioned there that there's a risk that temps could walk into hostile environments so you know following on from this then could you explain to our listeners some of the key considerations for businesses engaging temps in the event of strikes? Yeah sure um, and you know none of this um, I would say is kind of rocket science to be honest with you um, and it's about remembering that temps would be just as important part of your workforce as your permanent staff who are going on strike. So you've got kind of a duty of care towards them and a responsibility um, towards them. And so it's about treating temps fairly as you would your own staff. Um, the other point to make is, is about this communication side of things. Don't forget that the recruitment agency needs to be clear that their temps will be covering strikes. And that's for, for two main reasons. Um, one of the reasons is that the agency might be criticised for getting involved in the first place. And don't forget, a lot of these strikes may be union-led, and those unions are actually quite powerful um, and, and can be very critical of recruitment agencies anyway. Um, but the other point more in the agency's interest is they could lose future business if they're sending in temps unknowingly into a difficult situation and those temps then don't want to work for that agency anymore so so they so the agency has two kind of levels of interest so again it's it's really about making sure that that people are aware of what they're going into and of course from the agency's perspective um a lot of um sectors are increasingly candidate led if there are skill shortages um i mentioned unions then um you know sort of within temp um teaching or or whatever um there are there are potential shortages and of course if there are if you're in that sector where there are shortages that temp is more likely to change agency if they're not kind of forewarned. So I, I do think as businesses, you've got a number of duties there to, to consider. 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, you also touched on the kind of duty of care that employers have towards temps. So, so what about the legal side of things then? Is, is the legislation allowing temps to cover striking workers even, even legal? Well, I think that's a really good question. And, and I'll tell you why. It's, it's actually up for debate at the moment. And um, I mentioned unions earlier and the, the union for unions, the, the TUC, um, is actually arguing that, that this new legislation is not actually legal and is actually a violation of Article 11 of the European Convention on Human Rights. Um, And basically what that does is um, enable um, all workers to have freedom of assembly and association. And it's an international law. So the TUC are saying that this international law has, has been broken by um by by the UK now allowing temps to cover strikes because they're preventing um the sort of union activity in essence um they also uh, believe it impinges on unions' rights by making it um, more difficult to take effective industrial action. And they have actually um, complained to the International Labour Organization about about these these issues. And time will tell as to whether whether there is kind of a judgment as to whether this legislation is actually legal or not. For now. It is there um, and, you know, um, could be used. So so just to be clear, um, and I don't think there will be any kind of repercussions if someone listening to this were were to use the, the law and it turns out um, that, that there's a view that the UK law is is not kind of legitimate. Um, so so it is it is there. Um, but it's up for debate as to how how legal it is in, in international law. Great. Thank you for that. So one of the biggest dismissal controversy stories this year was the issue with P&O ferries. What exactly went wrong here? Yeah, I mean, that that was a big, big story. Um, and I'm not sure that lessons have been have been learned. Um, and th- this is where when I was saying earlier about agencies potentially being criticised for supplying temps to cover striking words, it was actually the P&O story at the forefront of my mind. Um, and, you know, what happened was the P&O ferry um, uh, crew employees in Britain were fired and then replaced by agency workers because those agency workers were a cheaper alternative. Now, the issue is um, is not only that 800 um, workers were made redundant in in a terrible way. Actually, apparently they were told um, in a video call that they would be let go and barely had more than a, a number of days' notice. Um, but also, the issue was that temps were then drafted in um, at very short notice to plug the gaps. And you know. I'm a big fan of of the temporary workforce, as I said at, at the at the very start, um, and and the flexibility and the ability of them to plug gaps at short notice is actually such a strength for the, for this kind of I I talk about an unseen army of unsung heroes, um, which is perhaps a bit grand, um, but but you know. And, and so that is a fantastic characteristic of having temporary workers, but. In the P&O instance in particular, what was forgotten perhaps was the morality um, of the employer um, who was doing this. Um, so it was it was kind of, they, they, they were changing all of their permanent staff, replacing them. Um, and, and the temps walked right into the eye of the storm and it, it just... Um, it, it just got very, very messy and there was huge amounts of criticism of, of everything involved. And um, although P&O's strategy was technically 
legal, you know, um, they they have suffered huge, huge reputational damage. And I know politicians were getting involved um, and there was lots of rhetoric at the time about stuff they were going to do. But to my mind, um, I haven't really seen P&O properly held accountable for, for what went on. Oh, I really love that phrase, unseen army of unsung heroes. But but yes, I think I think the morality is a key thing that needs to be focused on here, despite the apparent, you know, legality of it. Um, I know you said that um, you know, you haven't really seen any repercussions of this particular scandal, but what do you think are the consequences for companies and organizations that tend to carry out these sorts of these sorts of actions? Well, um, yeah, I mean it... I, I suppose they they do they are at risk of of having huge reputational damage as, as we've talked about, but also I think the the main issue is that by bringing temps in to cover your staff who are going on strike is likely to just exacerbate the situation and prolong things and it may even make matters worse by further alienating your staff who are on strike because obviously there's an issue there there's a disagreement um so obviously um it, it no compromise has been met and so what you your staff on strike would perceive to be the case is that even them going on strike which as i said at the start would be a last resort for them um is still not being listened to and and actually you would be undermining them by 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 kind of just bringing in um people to cover them um other issues to think about if you are thinking about using the legislation and as i say it is there to be used um are potential supply issues for for the recruitment agency if particular skills or volumes of temps are needed so don't just assume they will be readily available and also, if you are affected by um, a sector which is going on a strike in a nationwide strike, then you need to bear in mind that recruitment agencies may well need a longer lead time than you are used to um, so that they can then fulfil the needs um, for, for you and their client. And actually, that supply issue um, was partly why the do you remember earlier this year, airports were were kind of being criticised a huge amount um, after COVID restrictions were lifted and there were massive queues at all the airports because basically they didn't appear to have enough staff there to service the, the demand. And that's partly because there wasn't enough lead time to supply appropriately qualified and vetted staff to the to those roles so i do have um quite some sympathy with with agencies actually if there is a strike how on earth are they going to supply all the people to everyone um up and down the country to to cover those strikes so you know lots of issues practical issues there to 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 kind of bear in mind for for your listeners i think Great, that was fantastic. Thank you very much, Julia. Um, finally, you know, we ask all of the guests on our HR in Review podcast two questions. Uh, the first one, if you could pass on one crucial lesson you've learned in your HR career in one minute or less, what would be your top tip for other HR pros? Wow, um, it's, it's hard to do in, in one minute or less. And I hope I don't sound too kind of um, vague about it. But I really would say, once you've found your passion, stick with it. So I'm sure many of us have had varied careers doing different things. I certainly have, have done uh, things working for medical charities, trade associations, tax and employment legislation. And I've ended up in a niche where I am empowering in my mind a really important workforce and I love it it's my passion I've been here um, working in this space for about 10 years and I couldn't imagine doing anything else and you know 
it's challenging um for sure what what I do um but because it's my passion it doesn't feel like work and I know lots of people kind of say things like that and it does sound a bit twee but genuinely when you find your passion go for it and stick with it do you know what I think that was extremely close to a minute so (laughs) great um lastly then what is the single biggest change you think will happen in HR over the next five to ten years okay well um this this is um interesting because I've given this a little bit of thought and it seems to me that you know since the pandemic um and in recent years the very definition of what being an employee is and employment status has changed and will will continue changing as a result of the pandemic. And what I mean is I can see the boundaries between employment and self-employment are increasingly blurred. So COVID showed us that employees can work very independently of the business that pays their salary, um, you know, with everyone working from home um, and that side of things. And some of those new ways of how people are working are actually very similar to being self-employed in terms of choosing when, how and where they work and, you know, all of all of the stuff around that um, and, you know, making those decisions to be independent. And on the flip side of that, some self-employed people could increasingly be integrated into a business and maybe seem more like employees. Um, you know, if you if you kind of have someone who's doing your social media for you, for sake of example, and they're self-employed, they may become very integral in the business because they need to be as part of their role. Um, and I know that there are tax considerations of being self-employed and um, employees, but putting those tax considerations aside, I can see no issue with either of those trends. Employees starting to look more like self-employed and a bit more independent and self-employed people starting to look a bit more integrated into the business. So we've kind of got this blurring of boundaries and this mix um, that that we've got going on. And that leads me to think that in, in HR terms, I can kind of foresee a more human cloud type of approach, which, you know, um, where where it's actually quite normal to not have thousands of permanent employees and maybe have a bit more of a homogenous mix of, of people who maybe aren't permanently employed. Um, and, you know, you bring the right people in with the right skills to work on the right roles, which suits them at the times that the business needs. And don't forget, people's expectations have changed and people in employment are increasingly thinking more independently about how they work, they need or want ultimate flexibility, but they also may not actually want to take that full leap into self-employment. So I really kind of think that this human cloud approach is is a very smart way forward for businesses um, and it harnesses the current trend. And I don't think we should be scared of the current trend. And I think, you know, um, it has the potential for, for a human cloud type of approach to overtake employment as, as being the, the norm. Um, and I realise from a tax perspective, there's massive complexities there. But to be honest with you, if the human resources side of things is what we're what we're here to talk about um and if it works for businesses and for people then I think that should that should be the the priority um but yeah so really difficult question to answer I hope I haven't um <laughs> over eggs my answer there <laughs> no not at all super interesting what you said about the current trend flexibility and working and how people's expectations have changed um but you know it's been fantastic having you on and thanks very much Julia Oh, thank you so much for having me. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you.
If you have any comments on the HR and Review podcast, would like to suggest a topic or speaker, or provide other feedback, you can contact us using the email podcast at hrreview.co.uk. We look forward to hearing from you. Hi, Seb. Welcome. Welcome to HR in Review. It's great to have you on. Oh, likewise. It's great to be here. Great. So first of all, would you like to tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and what exactly it is that you do? Uh, yeah, so uh, I'm uh, the CEO of QDOS. Um, uh, QDOS uh, is uh, an I-35 and a, a tax insurance provider and, uh, and a consultancy firm. So we've been around since uh, the late 80s and since uh, since 2000 have, uh, have specialised um, in, in I-35 uh, when the legislation was, uh, was originally introduced. We've uh, carried out over 150,000 uh, assessments on, uh, on, on engagements for I-35 status and we've uh, defended over 1600 i35 investigations uh, as well uh, over the last few years been very busy um, following uh, the reform that we've seen in uh, in the public and private sectors and uh, been doing a lot of work with with public and private sector businesses and organizations um, over 3000 of them um, really helping them to to, to manage uh, their way through uh, through the off payroll working rules um, and to, to be able to continue to to engage contractors in a safe and uh, in a compliant manner great thanks very much so first of all then why don't we start off outlining what exactly is IR35 and what's the latest on it Okay, so yeah, IR35 uh, is a piece of uh, anti-avoidance uh, tax legislation, um, and uh, its aim, uh, really, from the government's point of view, is to is to, co- is to close what uh, that they perceive to be a loophole um, in the tax system, where um, individuals could set up limited companies and uh, and, and pay less tax um, than they would. Uh, if they were employees of the company that they work for. So it was originally introduced, as I mentioned, uh, back in 2000. Um, I think at that stage, the government and HMRC felt there was widespread avoidance with people being able to set up limited companies um, and uh, and, and uh, purportedly pay less tax than, uh, than um, an, uh, an equivalent employee would pay. Uh, and when it was introduced, um, and right up until 2017, um, contractors themselves were, and, and consultants and freelancers were responsible for determining their status. Um, so they had to decide whether they were genuinely self-employed, um, or if uh, the services they provided were actually more like employment, and, and therefore they'd have to, to, to pay the relevant tax. Um, so if somebody is self-employed, uh, they are what we call working outside IR35, so that means the legislation um, doesn't apply to them and they can pay themselves as they see fit through their limited company, so typically that will be salary and dividends. Um, if they're actually worked, working like an employee, that's when we say that somebody is uh, is inside IR35 and uh, and they should be uh, su- should be subject to uh, employment tax and national insurance. So in um, 2017, that was reformed in the public sector. So um, I think for a long time, HMRC felt that um, the rules were quite difficult to police because uh, there were so many people working through limited companies, and HMRC didn't have uh, didn't have uh, particularly significant resources. And for a long time, they wanted to to, to change. Um, the way that the, 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 the rules work to make their, their job easier. 
and the easiest place to start was the public sector. So in 2017, they uh, they introduced reform, and that meant that the responsibility for determining status switched over from um, the worker um, to the client who uh, who engaged them, uh, and the the liability for getting that wrong also uh, also moved as well. It was you know almost a foregone conclusion that after they uh, the rules were changed in 2017 that that the government's um, aim would be to, to roll those out into the uh, into the private sector as well and ultimately um, that's what happened um, in 2021 um, although they were delayed for a year um, because of, uh, of, of COVID-19. Um, so they have caused a lot of disruption um, and there's been a lot of contractors who feel like they've been unfairly dealt with and uh, you know there's been a lot of private sector companies who have been quite risk averse in, uh, in the way that they've approached the rules. Um, and yeah, it's it's had a, a, a fairly significant impact on uh, on the market. It's but it's been both problematic for contractors who have um, felt like they've been unfairly treated, but also it's been difficult for engagers um, who have had disruption to projects and so on, but also have found it quite difficult to uh, to, to to recruit um, contractors. And a lot of organisations rely on uh, on flexible workers. Um, there's been quite a lot of activity in the last few weeks. Obviously, there's been a lot of political activity generally, but um, one of the kind of focus points really of uh, of the mini budget that we had um, with the Liz Truss uh, government was that they uh, would repeal the reform to IR35 uh, from April 2023. So there was a huge sigh, uh, you know, sigh of relief really um, from both contractors and private and private sector businesses who felt that uh, they were going to be unburdened by the rules. Um, but then uh, a few weeks later, we then had pretty much everything that was announced by uh, by Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng um, cancelled by uh, by Jeremy Hunt. So now we're back to, to where we were about six weeks ago. Um, but unfortunately, contractors and businesses have had a bit of, uh, of false hope in the meantime. Yeah, great. So, I mean, you touched quite a bit on the recent changes there, of which there have been quite a bit. Um, but, you know, broadly speaking then, uh, would you like to explain to our listeners what these changes mean for HR? Well, I guess because we've had um, a repeal and then a U-turn of the repeal, ultimately not <laughs> nothing really has changed um, for, from uh, from from the perspective of, uh, of of HR professionals over uh, over the last few weeks. It would have been quite a significant change had the government proceeded with what was announced in the uh, in the emergency budget, um, you know, because it would have meant that everything would swing back to contractors and uh, businesses wouldn't have to go through the uh, the, the the rigmarole that they uh, that they currently do. But uh, but really, we as I said we're back to where we were a few weeks ago so HR departments um, of, uh, of, of engagers um, have just got to continue to ensure um, that, uh, that you know their business is I-35 compliant so continue to, to uh, be educated and make uh, make well-informed um, I-35 determinations and uh, you know to, to, to maintain that confidence that any contractors that they do engage uh, are operating uh, with the uh, the correct IR35 status. Mm, exactly then so do you think that we are likely to see more changes or perhaps even another repeal then or? Uh, I mean it's difficult to know exactly what to expect at the moment because uh, things aren't uh, you know it's, uh, things have been up in the air and there's, uh, there seems to be a surprise around every corner at the moment but um, I don't think so I think um, you know that the, the Sunak government um, is uh, you know looking at things with clearly with a um, you know a, a, a different uh, a different set of eyes than the, than, than the trust government was and I, I very much doubt um, that there's going to be any um, significant changes particularly in the in, in 
the short in the short term. Sunak, of course, was was chancellor when um, the reform was originally introduced in 2021 in the private sector. Um, so I think his uh, his stance on uh, on on uh, the rules that I35 is fairly clear. It may be that we see a review um, of, of, uh, of, of the rules. We've had many reviews really over the last uh, last few years, none of which have really come to anything. Um, but uh, but certainly, I think uh, for the foreseeable future, things will um, will will remain as they are now. But um, as I said, you never know. Yeah, exactly. You never know, especially these days. Um, but moving on to recruitment, then, uh, what do you think recruiters can do to ensure compliance? Yeah, I mean, recruiters um, are in a bit of an unenviable position, really. I mean, um, what you typically find when uh, when contractors are engaged is that you've got a client and you've got a recruitment agency and then you've got the contractor. So there is a, a supply chain there. And because of the way that legislation has been built, um, whilst the, the, the engager, so the client, um, is responsible for actually making that determination of status, is actually the, the agency or the fee payer who, who carries that liability. Um, so agencies, even though they're not making any decisions, potentially face um, you know, some financial consequences if HMRC decide that the determinations that, uh, that the client made were incorrect. Um, so uh, re- really, uh, our, our advice, um, if there is, um, you know, a, a, a chain there, is for everyone to work together and uh, to to, uh, to really make sure that um, that uh, you know the decisions that are made are well informed, they're accurate, um, and uh, you know that all all parties are in agreement with the process that's being followed. Um, and uh, recruiters, um, as as we found over the last couple of, year, of years, have really been um, quite key in sort of driving um, a pragmatic and reasonable response to, uh, to to the rules okay great so I guess you know following on from that then what about what about end clients yeah from a client's point of view uh, I mean it's really important that clients take reasonable care this is something that um, you know when the rules were introduced in put in the public sector in 2017 we saw what were became known as kind of blanket assessments where organizations were essentially banning the use of contractors and not engaging any contractors outside I-35. So I think the key message really is that it's absolutely fine to engage contractors um, as genuinely self-employed um, you know, uh, consultants and, and working outside I-35. Um, and, and that should certainly continue regardless of, regardless of the fact that the, uh, you know, the client holds this, uh, holds this responsibility. Um, and obviously, we've been helping a lot of private sector firms in, in doing just that, you know, making sure that um, they benefit from the ability to, to engage contractors, um, but also protect themselves from, from the, uh, the, the, the potential tax risk as well. So there's lots of ways in which uh, uh, clients can uh, can do that. Um, what I would say is that um, HMRC um, have built their um, CEST tool, um, so Check Employment Status for Tax. Um, that's been something that's come under a huge amount of criticism over the years because um, it um, you know it misses out key bits of case law. There's been a lot of instances of, uh, particularly in the public sector, of organisations using the tool and then um, coming under attack from HMRC for making incorrect decisions. So we would certainly um, you know encourage um, end clients to look at alternative ways and alternative methods of uh, of, of determining status. Assess that doesn't offer the protection that perhaps HMRC would like people to uh, to, to believe, uh, and there are plenty of other ways of of, uh, of, of doing it and, and uh, affording a lot more protection. Mm, okay, then. So, so focusing on HMRC, then who you just mentioned, uh, how seriously are they taking IR thirty five compliance? And you know, are businesses perhaps 
in any danger of facing fines if they accidentally fall foul of of these new rules? There certainly is a risk. Yeah, I mean, um, we can see that they have been quite active in the public sector over the last uh, last few years. As I mentioned, a lot of public sector organisations um, use the CES tool and, uh, and HMRC felt that they were prime targets for attack. So uh, I think there's been, you know, somewhere in the region of £250 million in tax bills that have been uh, have been issued um, to public sector firms. So they do take it seriously. Uh, and, um, you know, over the last uh, last year or so, we've, we've started seeing some activity in the private sector as well so HMRC have been contacting private sector clients um, and uh, asking for details on uh, on how they made determinations um, and uh, so so it, you know they are going to be active um, and uh, I'm, I'm sure that uh, HMRC will see it as a potential focus point when they're looking to uh, uh, you know for, for, for tax yield over over the next couple of years um, but at the same time um, that doesn't mean that the, the rules aren't manageable and the businesses can't protect themselves um, fairly easily from uh, fr- from from the risks of IR35 and it uh, it certainly doesn't mean that businesses should take uh, a risk averse um, approach or make any knee-jerk reactions to them. Great okay so so moving on to automation then uh, you know the benefits of automation for organizations is something that's now widely spoken about uh, how much do you think automate automation is going to help HR keep up with all these changes or perhaps new changes to IR35? I think uh, certainly with um, with rules that are as complex as IR35, um, looking for too much automation is perhaps a bit of a danger. So as I mentioned, HMRC's CES tool is something that's kind of algorithm based, so you can get a, a response, uh, a result um, in, in, in most cases um, when you input the details on there. Um, but um, IR35 itself is based on decades worth of, uh, of employment status case law, and it's, um, it's very difficult to build any kind of one size fits all platform um, to, uh, to to be able to give uh, a robust answer um, to status around uh, to, to questions around uh, tax or employment status. So, I mean, I think you know you've got to find that balance, and, and, and really, what we do is make sure there is automation in the process in terms of uh, the administration and the management of the process. But ultimately, the important decisions are still made by an expert and still made by by a human being. So, whilst I think there are certain uh, certainly ways of uh, making the process and uh, and the administration um, uh, around that process is, uh, is streamlined and, and using as much automation there. I think uh, it's really important that, that businesses also understand that it is a complex area and I think human intervention is, uh, is, is, is still required in many cases. Yeah, exactly. I think it's all about finding that balance, as, as you said. Yeah. Um, you know, are there any other changes then you think that HR need to be, be aware of? I think um, IR35 has naturally, because of the changes in, in, in the legislation, IR35 has really taken a lot of focus over the last few years. Um, but employment status more generally is uh, is an issue, I think, that um, that people need to be aware of. Um, IR35 only applies where the, the, the worker is working through um, their own limited company or a partnership, whereas there's a, a, a far bigger world out there where you've got sole traders who are working as self-employed individuals. Um, that um, that you know, IR35 doesn't apply to them, but there are different status rules um, that have similar risks um, that the that client should be uh, the client should be aware of. So I think, yeah, as I said, IR35 has really hit, you know, grabbed the headlines over the last few years. But employment status is is um, is is a much wider world, um, and I think uh, you know businesses shouldn't ignore that, and um, certainly shouldn't be looking for any workarounds, I guess, to um, to, to IR35 by looking to engage workers in in a different manner because. 
because everything carries a risk. Um, and, uh, you know, I think it's, it's important that uh, awareness is raised in that regard. Great. Thank you very much. Um, finally, then, we ask all of our guests on the HR Interview podcast two questions. Uh, so firstly, if you could pass on one crucial lesson you've learned in your HR career in one minute or less, what would be your top tip for other HR pros? Um, I was, well, I'd start by saying I'm not an HR professional, so this might be terrible, uh, terrible advice. But um, I, I would say um, something that I've certainly certainly learned uh, over over the years of, of, of running this business is that it's really important to pay attention to um, ideas that staff uh, at every level have um, and to, if possible, create an environment where people are, are really encouraged to um, think uh, creatively and think entrepreneurial uh, entrepreneurially. I think um, it's, it's, it's pretty easy to let people slip into a culture of not questioning um, the way things are done or how things could be done better. But if you actually create a culture where that's the norm, um, it's uh, it's amazing how many um, ideas that people can have and how that, that generally creates a far more um, exciting place to work for people. Great. Um, lastly, then, what is the single biggest change you think will happen in HR over the next five to ten years? Um, well, I, I suppose the, the 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 natural immediate answer is is kind of the shift that we've seen in in working practices um, following the pandemic. Um, so obviously, employees generally expect more flexibility, particularly around where they where they work. Um, and it's uh, I think it's going to be really interesting to see how how things like um, the co- the concept of the the, the four day working week is going to uh, kind of evolve, um, and how that's going to sort of establish itself over the next few years. Um, I, I do think more widely there's going to be a, a general movement towards more flexibility in in the manner in which people are, are, are engaged, um, and I would kind of expect um, globally really to see a, uh, some growth in in self employment, and I think that's going to be a noticeable trend over over the over the coming years too. Obviously, things things like I thirty five potentially a blocker um, to that, um, but uh, I think uh, governments uh, really need to get on board with supporting a more um, forward thinking and, uh, and and transient uh, economy. Fantastic! Well, it's been it's been really good having you on, Seb. Thank you so much for joining. No, it's, it's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Thank you. The HR and Review podcast is brought to you by hrreview.co.uk. hrreview.co.uk is a website dedicated to human resources and related professionals. News items are posted daily together with analysis looking in-depth at topical HR issues. You can sign up for our range of specialist newsletters at hrreview.co.uk slash sign up and follow us on Twitter at HRReview or join us on LinkedIn and Facebook. Thank you for listening.